Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. I am doing the introduction because Ryan Bailey is not with us. We're going to speculate wildly about what he is doing instead of being here. Uh, to do so, I need my two co-hosts, my two fr- two friends in soccer. Up first is coughing Graham Ruthven. How you doing, Graham? <laughs> Hello, Taylor. Yes, I'm fine. I'm still raging from the... The Spain game, and I definitely didn't oh, spend no. yesterday rewatching the game and noting down every bad decision made by the the referee. But other than that, yes, I am doing very well, thank you. Was there any like reason for that? Were you writing an article, or is it just full sicko mode for you? Well, that's what happens when we don't have weekend review. Those are the things <laughs> that I'm pushed towards. But yeah, ultimately, it's a great great relief for for uh, Scotland to qualify and be among the big nations to have qualified. I'm looking through the the list of countries here that have qualified: um, France, Portugal, Spain, Scotland, Belgium, Turkey, Austria. Wait a minute, England aren't on this list. <laughs> have England like not qualified yet? I feel That's like you had this, this whole thing ready for Ryan to be here, and now that yeah. he's not, we should just keep <laughs> it going. Graham, does that mean that England are good or not good that they haven't qualified? Oh, that's embarrassing. I mean, little old Scotland has qualified before them. <laughs> little old Scotland. Uh, here with us to talk maybe about Scotland, but more to answer some listener questions. Uh, we have coughing Graham Ruthven, and we have under the weather Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. Yeah, let's go. Um, my, my theory on Ryan and where <laughs> uh-huh. he is today is I saw a map the other day that was uh, like, what if all of the Culvers in Milwaukee were connected as like metro lines? And I don't know how I found this, but that came across my feed. I think Ryan is trying to do the same in Charlotte with his favorite fast casual dining places. So I think he's working on sort of a Chili's metro line. I think he's working on a Hard Rack Cafe metro line. I think that's what Ryan's been working on, and he's just been too scared to tell us. And for the uninformed, a.k.a. me, I thought you were saying like a concrete culvert. Uh, Culver is a restaurant of some kind? Culver's, yes. Culver's is a a Midwest specialty uh, fast food place. That does feel like a place Ryan would enjoy. Ryan is yeah. not with us. He is moving into his house. He has movers ah. bringing things in. Well, no, move, maybe not movers, plural. I think he's got just one, one person, yeah. and that person is very short and, and, and slight in figure and can't carry very much. And Ryan is loving it. Let's continue with this. Do we think Ryan is calm when it comes to the movie? Do we think he is no, like following no. them the whole way? No. And like it goes there exactly. Ryan is, Ryan is probably not calm about it, but I think his general demeanor, his external demeanor will be calm mm-hmm. while being you know understandably particular yeah. about where things are supposed to go i think on the inside he is boiling that yeah. is my prediction <laughs> no i think I, I think what it is is in in conversation with the movers ryan is playing it very very yeah. cool and, mm-hmm. and as soon as they're out of the house he's going <laughs> just steam coming out of his ears oh i look forward to him listening to this and then getting even more frustrated uh, and we'll hear from him uh, later on in the week for now We've got listener questions to get to. Graham, let's start with one from Ian Abundis. Is it profitable or not to own a football club? I hear constantly how good of an investment football clubs or any sports team are, while simultaneously hearing how much money every club loses every year. How do both of these things seem to be true? Perhaps I misunderstand what each really means. Uh, I think there is... Some truth to both statements. I also think Ian has stumbled upon the deliberate mixed messaging of football ownership, Mm. Uh, but we can talk more about that later on. Graham, how say you on this one? I also think Ian's question hits at something I stumble across every so often, which is rich people finances are different to normal people finances, where I'll be reading a story and go, wait, debt is good for this? (laughs) In the, for this club and it does kind of seem like that is that is part of the equation with football clubs and um, football clubs are laden with debt so last season the net debt in the Premier League across the 20 clubs stood at 2.7 
billion and COVID has been a, a factor in those numbers. But just to address um, Ian's question head on, um, football clubs do make money, but you generally have to look to the elite level for those clubs. So Forbes estimates that between 2020 and 2023, Tottenham were the most profitable club in the world. Their profits were £325 million. Manchester United, not far behind that, £316 million. Manchester City, £258 million. Liverpool, £231 million. And in Bayern Munich, to give you a top five, £184 million. Now, those are obviously some of the biggest clubs in the world. But a shockingly small number of clubs actually turn a profit. So Forbes say that between 2019 and 2021, just 10 teams in world football, and it might, it might be European football anyway, it's, it's either European football or world football, that's still a small number, number. 10 teams recorded a profit of £1 million or more. Um, now again, obviously COVID was a factor in, in, in that period, but still, that is that is not a lot of uh, clubs making a, a lot of money. If I look at Rangers, a club that I have first-hand experience of in, in, in Scotland and how big they are and they play in Europe and they played in the Champions League last year and they made a European final two seasons ago and they sell out most matches in a 50,000-seater stadium, they registered an operating profit of just £6 million last year, which is quite shocking. And if you were to place these clubs, these football clubs, in amongst um, general business. So if I look at um, the biggest companies in terms of revenue in the UK for 2022, Manchester United, which is England's biggest club, a recognisable recognizable brand around the world, their revenue for that year made them the 171st biggest company in the UK. Not the world, that's just the UK. The Bank of Georgia's UK revenue was ahead of Manchester United in that list. So it is sometimes, yes, football clubs do make money, obviously hundreds of millions of pounds in some cases, but compared to other businesses, it feels yeah. like there are easier ways to make money. Taylor's in the mud on Manchester United, is all I heard there. No, Graham, I think so much of, of what you said there is is totally true. I wanted to ask a question, actually, because a lot of what you said lines up with my research. You opened with sometimes for some of these wealthy owners, debt is a good thing. And I don't know, maybe you don't have miles and miles of prep on that. But can you expand on that a little bit more? Like what what does that mean in this context? So I was listening to a podcast this week um, on Jim Ratcliffe's um, kind of partial takeover of Manchester United and why he is not likely, or Enios, his company is not likely to purchase the full club, even though Enios have the money to do that. And essentially it is beneficial. Um, I can't really go into specifics because I don't have them to hand, but basically David Ornstein was saying it is beneficial for Ornstein to have their money tied up in assets, which can be attached to, um, which can be attached in the form of debt. So it's actually beneficial for Enios to have that money rather than just having a cash reserve. It's beneficial to have it in, in, in debt. I guess it's kind of like, it's kind of like why what, how there's a benefit in if you're paying off like a phone or something like that. Like I paid like £30 a month over two years for an iPhone rather than sticking £1,000 on it right at the start when I bought it. There is a benefit to kind of um, siphoning off your, your finances in that way. But to be honest, Joe, I don't I don't fully understand it. And this is at the top of my answer. I said this feels like one of those things that rich people understand, understand and normies like me don't really understand. Yeah, I mean, I... I tend to think that like maybe there's also an argument that financial institutions benefit from from us all believing that debt is a great idea. I think plenty of people would say it's not. But to Graham's point, as I understand it, like on a personal level, uh, like you want to build credit, you build credit by going into debt, but then you earn that credit by paying that debt off, basically. And you show that you're a responsible human, that you're able to uh, take on debt, but then pay that debt off. And I'm assuming the same would apply to football clubs as well, that if you are taking on some level of ownership and going into debt to do so – the idea would be that if you're paying it back and you're showing that you have the financial resources, but also financial restraint to do so in a timely and organized manner, you then build credit as an individual. But I think more from an institution, you establish your, your bona fides, you establish that you can function as yeah. a solvent entity, basically. Another thing with debt with football clubs is a lot of these owners have no intention of paying the debt off. The Glazers are a good example of this. The Glazers' whole plan is one day to sell Manchester United for a lot more than they bought them for back in whenever it was, 2004. And they saddled the club with all the debt that from the leverage takeover at that time. The Glazers are hoping to saddle someone else with that debt when they sell the club. They have no, no intention of, of, of paying it off. So the, the game plan for a lot of these owners is to use the debt to build up the asset in value 
and then one day sell it. And I think the the, the tell in that game plan is the fact that the Glazers they are the only owners in the Premier League who take dividends out of the club. Every other owner doesn't actually Yay. enrich themselves from ownership <laughs> of the club. Love the plan it. is, Taylor is, is so enthralled at that idea. <laughs> the, the plan is that one day they'll sell it for a lot more than they bought it. That, that's yeah. the whole thing. Yay, well, and, and that's, that's the other part of this question, right? So we've talked about, yeah, a lot of these teams do lose money every year. I was listening to a Sportico podcast. Mm-hmm. They just had their NWSL club valuations come out maybe two weeks ago, and they're in breaking down these these valuations. And basically on that show, they said, yeah, every MLS and NWSL team, I would, exu- I would assume that extends to the USL. These teams are losing money. But part of the reason why it can be a good investment is because of rising valuations, right? There are relatively speaking, a fixed number of high-level sports teams in the world. That is just kind of the way it is. Sportico's NWSL valuations, to actually cite a specific one, one of those numbers is that Angel City is now valued at $180 million. Their expansion fee for that ownership group is reported to be somewhere between 2 and $5 million. Angel City have been in the NWSL for two years. Now, that rise and that percentage increase is not typical, They are the most valuable NWSL club by a mile when you look at those ratings. But we are seeing rising valuations in the NWSL to the point where I think as far as a sporting investment goes, if you're going to buy a sports team or invest in one, you would be hard pressed to do better than buying an NWSL team right now or or being a part of that expansion movement. You can see that in some of the expansion fees that have increased in some of the the, uh, financial resources that new ownership groups in that league are committing They believe that this is something that is going to add value over time. And the same is true, perhaps at a slightly different rate and and certainly at a different scale for elite level clubs over in the Premier League or other high level European clubs. These assets are appreciating in value by and large over time, which has a ton to do with their value as an investment. Yeah, which I think is if we're talking about the Glazers again, the entire plan is buy the thing make it into a commercial entity, make the money off of it, take your dividend payments, accumulate value, and then eventually sell for a ridiculous fee, uh, which is maybe what they're in the process of doing now. And Joe, I think you're absolutely right that the valuation is a big part of this. It's it's a big part of when we talk about Major League Soccer and how uh, valuable these individual franchises are. I think a lot of the value is just that you have bought into a, a closed market, and now you are part of that market. You've gotten in at whatever level you've gotten in at, but the value... Is expected to continue to increase because franchises in the United States tend to increase in that way. And I think NWSL is a good shout there. And I think that pertains to the biggest clubs uh, in the world. I do think part of this also is about like I would compare it to what happens with newspapers, where if a newspaper is run as a newspaper by newspaper people with newspaper margins, it tends to be okay. As soon as you start running a newspaper as a business and you bring in people from other industries which have different margins to run that newspaper, the expectations are going to be different. And if you're running a newspaper and it's got 5% margins, but now you have to have 15%, you're cutting staff, you're making changes, you're trying to, you're likely changing the content to appeal to different readers to get them to buy in more. And and once you start running a thing as a business that isn't necessarily meant to be run as a business business, I think you can run into problems. And that seems to be how football goes as well. I think largely clubs are meant to exist in the community, to service the community, to employ people from the community, to give children in the area a, a sporting outlet uh, and, and to be a sort of representation of that community. And I think if we're sticking with Manchester United under Sir Alex Ferguson, like that seems to have been what they were. Yes, they make money. But I don't think they do to the degree when the Glazers take over and Ed Woodward is there and now you've got commercial partnerships and sponsors and brands and blah, 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 blah. And now you're running it fully as a business. And I think when you do that, you make sacrifices, you make changes to a thing that isn't necessarily supposed to be operated in that way, in my opinion. And so I think that's also where you run into some of the issues with we have tons of money, we have no money is when you have those fluctuations when it's operating as a business instead of as like a community organization, basically. But maybe that's my naivete showing. Basically, I, I think you end up with so many, um, what's the word I would use? Shady owners, uh, to use a catch-all term. I would count like the Glazers. And, Texan Shinawatra would like a word with you. How dare you? <laughs> well, he's he's in this category as well. Yeah. But Shady can cover a lot of different categories of owner. <laughs> but you get what I mean. I think football ends up with so many Shady owners be, because... 
really the smart business people in the world are not investing in football because it is quite difficult to make money out of football. Yes, you can count on it being a 20-year product project, if Joe, as Joe kind of refers to, and, and, and relying on the, the, the increase in the valuation of the club and then eventually selling it. But that is, that is a long-term play. If you want to make money quickly, football is not the place to to go into. So you end up nah. with you end up with shady characters, or you end up with egomaniacs, or you end up with the Glazers with Manchester United. They're a bit of an exception because Manchester United in the mid two thousands were printing money, and it, they, they could just continue to do that without uh, any real attention from from the owners. Um, so yeah, football I think attracts those kind of owners because of yeah. the way it is uh, as a business. Well, and my last thought on this, I think that's that's totally true, Graham. Paul and Sam would talk about this all the time on allocation disorder for for some owners they have so much money that this is just a toy right and so it, in some ways it's not right for us to ascribe logic or even financial intent on some of these uh, some of these clubs and some of these owners because they want to do something cool with all their money and that at times looks like buying a sports team because there aren't very many of them and that's a cool thing to say that you did and that's kind of all there is to it I don't know what you're talking about, Joe. I'm pretty sure the people of Siberia are the ones who own Chelsea. Definitely not Roman Abramovich for a good long chunk. And now Todd Foley, who probably also represents many, many, many happy people. He doesn't. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back to answer more questions that aren't about finances. At least I don't believe they are. Back soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. We are answering your listener questions. And this is, uh, again, where I stress that Ryan Bailey selected these questions <laughs> and was going to host and is now not with Just us. Just do a Ryan impression. For asking this one. Oh, my English accent just becomes like <laughs> Scottish and Cockney and terrible all at once. But I stress that because here's the question from Robert Cordova. In honor of the USA playing Ghana, how does Taylor look back at the early days of TSS when USA played against Ghana, especially against the recently retired Asamoah Gyan? Yeah, Gavna. so a few things. Go ahead. Governor. Governor. <laughs> That's your uh, Ryan Bailey impression. I did hello. it for you. Hello, Governor. <laughs> um, yes, so... Full disclosure on this one, when the USA played Ghana, I was uh, so drunk that I did not remember large chunks of that game because it was when we would still watch games in bars. And that was the game that happened, I think, what later time? in the day. We'll see. This is the problem. Uh, that happened later in the day. But I met uh, three of my buddies there to watch, I believe, Korea and Greece, maybe. It might have been Korea and Nigeria. I forget. But it was a, an early morning game. And we started there and then we stayed there. And I think they, that was also a period of like those buddies would do, I think, a shot at at the start of the first half, uh, I think, at halftime and then at the conclusion of the game. It didn't go well, uh, but we would sort of in that period watch stuff in bars uh, and then go to the studio to record. Uh, we didn't for that game because. Wait, sorry. Sorry, Taylor. Are we talking 2010, 2014, 2014, right? 2010 for this. 2010. One. That's okay. yeah. Thing. yeah. For when uh, it did not go well against Ghana in uh, extra time. Uh, and that was sort of like, I think Daryl, uh, our late co-host and one of the founders of TSS, was still much more like, like, let's talk about why that game was bad or what went wrong. That's always sort of been his approach. But I think the, the various co-hosts we had uh, were more inclined to kind of show up at the studio and talk about, like, that game sucked. Let's talk about why it was bad. Uh, and not really actually get into the why, but more so just talk about it being a bad game. And so I think we had to evolve a little bit, and that's when we stopped watching games in bars and, and made a point of kind of watching them so that we were actually figuring out what was going on and kind of understanding the narrative of the game, so to speak. That's also where we landed on the idea that, like, you have to be able to back up anything you want to say. Because when you're watching in a bar and you're not, like maybe fully paying attention. There were definitely times when 
one of our old co-hosts, I won't say which, uh, would say a thing and Daryl would like bring recording to a standstill to say, like, what do you mean? Explain that. What are you talking about? And the person would inevitably have to be like, I, I don't know. That's what I thought I saw. And so I think that started a a higher degree, a higher standard of like actually being able to back up what you're talking about. So that's how I look back at those early days of that transition into like, oh, we should probably talk about things in a more informed way and not just scream takes into a microphone. And I'm glad we made that change. Uh, in terms of Ghana itself, uh, I will forever be afraid of them. Uh, that That is like just hardwired into me, no matter how bad they might be, no matter how, how poor quality the team, I will never feel comfortable writing them off. And I will always expect Asamo Gian to turn up and just be unplayable. It doesn't matter how old he is. He could be 80 years old and I would still think he could mega defender and cause some problems. So even when in the 2022 world cup i think there weren't high expectations for them i still was like yeah but you can't write off the black stars they're gonna find a way to make things happen so they will kind of always be a team that i assume to be good no matter how bad they are they're like the patriots right now the patriots can be horrifically bad and not have a quarterback and i will still be like yeah there's just belichick's just getting you where he wants you before he turns it around and wins every game that's how i feel about ghana no matter how bad they are they still might be good Mm. You've got Ghana PTSD from a little bit. 2010, a little bit, 2014 a little bit. World Cups. Asamoah Jan in 2010 was the ultimate tournament player in that after that tournament, I was still naive back then. After that tournament, I'm thinking, this is the birth of a superstar. This guy's going to be one of the best strikers in the world. Of course, he was pretty, he wasn't young at that point. So uh, as I say, I was I was flawed in my logic. But after that World Cup, he goes mm-hmm. to Sunderland. That, that was your first mistake, Asamoah Jan, yeah, going to Sunderland. Yeah, and I think, ended up at Sunderland somehow. <laughs> yeah. Weird times, weird times. Yeah, and then from there, it's just kind of a, a, a bit of a journeyman career around the place. But yeah. Taylor, I was going to ask you, 2010, was that the first... Um, so listeners, by the way, I, I always enjoy um, listening and, and hearing Taylor Taylor talk about the origin story of TSS. And I would recommend Jason Davis's uh, One Shot on Frame series on YouTube. Taylor has, hasn't has uh, plugged this yet. He's been too modest to plug this on the show. But Jason had Taylor on, uh, on the show. And uh, there's a lot of chat about the origin story of TSS. And it's very interesting. So I would recommend that. But 2010 World Cup. Is that mm-hmm. the first World Cup you go big for with TSS, or does that come a little bit later? Like, where is TSS yeah. at that point? It's, it's. I think it's the first time we settled on doing a really like elaborate preview where we had four co-hosts at the time: myself, Daryl, Josh, and Al, and we would each take a team in a group, and then I think we had different categories, which ranged from like nickname, uh, national anthem. Uh, best player their coach but then also like most famous player to come from that country i think i can't remember if we or most famous person excuse me which is Mm. how i landed on serbia having a person who fell out of an airplane as the most famous person from that country it might have changed since then um but that was like (laughs) you didn't didn't think of like novak djokovic no it was a person falling from an airplane around in 2010 Yes, he was like one of the best tennis players in the world. Whatever, whatever. Graham, your mistake there is, is is tennis. That was where you went <laughs> right. wrong. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. I uh, forgot that uh, Taylor was plugged into the whole world of people jumping out of airplanes. Yeah, that subculture. Right. Yeah, yep. yeah. Graham's got tennis. I've got airplane jumping. What's wrong with that? <laughs> um, so it's the first one that we definitely like previewed, and I remember going on the uh, live on the radio that where we would record was at a radio station here in here in Richmond. And we went live on a show where we thought we would like be able to preview like the World Cup in a very broad sense. We, we thought we were going on for five minutes. And then the host was like, oh, no, I'm turning the, the whole hour over to you guys. And that was like because we had done all that previewing, we winged an hour long episode where we went through every single group and then kind of went through the knockout rounds. And so I think that showed a little bit that we could talk about things in more detail but we still weren't really at a point where we were watching every single game like at that i think i think at that time daryl probably had like three freelance jobs i had an eight to five i think the other guys did as well so it was sort of finding the time to record where we could 2014 uh when i moved back to the states that was the one where daryl and i previewed every single team so we each took uh, two teams in a group and then covered every single game. And that was where that sort of modern our like, what is our modern approach, I guess began. So 2010 was the first like world cup we covered on a larger scale. Like, I think that might be when we went to two or three shows a week instead of one show a week. Uh, and then 2014 is when we went, we pledged that if things went well, then we would go five days a week after that. And they did. Uh, and we did. And, and, and here we are. So 
Yeah, I think also that 2010 was when we learned that numbers double for World Cups and then drop off afterwards. But so that was the first time we saw like a spike in numbers. That was a little bit of a, a motivating factor. Mm. And the same was the case for 2014. And they're on since then. So it's been good times, but it's also been, uh, what, 14, coming up, I think 14 years, coming up on 15 years now. We've been around for a while, Total Soccer Show. Yeah. It's first thing, first thing, Taylor, uh, you old. Second thing, yep. I really do enjoy <laughs> getting to hear this history as well. I'm right there with Grandma. I'm a sucker for this stuff. Uh, what I want to know is when you guys were on the radio, because uh-huh. there was an era in TSS where that was a regular thing. 27 and a half minutes who, per episode, baby. Who, who was doing the like, welcome back to, not, you know, what? who was doing the, the like the full on, this okay, guy. it was you. It, <laughs> yes, it was this yes. guy. <laughs> yeah, so I was the... I was the original host because we did a pilot episode that took like three months to get everyone on the board to listen to, to approve the show. And by the time it was approved, Daryl was scheduled to go back to England for like a month vacation, visit visiting family and friends. So he was gone for like the first month the show was on the air. And that was how Albert and Josh came on board because I just I like needed people. So they came in. He came back and we had sort of settled into a rhythm of me directing the show a little bit. So Daryl then was like one of the the analysts and I was that host. And I I have to believe that if you go back and listen, there's definitely more of a like uh, talk radio kind of voice. Hey, uh, welcome back to Total Soccer Show. Like, yeah, uh, there was definitely probably some of that. Uh, luckily, we didn't go full sound effects or uh, the, the madman and the bear or anything like that. Uh, <laughs> Welcome but, to but KBBL. Sure that was there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then when I went abroad, uh, when I when I was gone for two years is when Daryl uh, became the host uh, and then stayed that way because he was very good at it. Uh, much better than me, I would say. Uh, I think you guys both handle it differently and, and do different things. I was Correct. wondering <laughs> because because I always remember Daryl doing the well, <laughs> Taylor's Taylor's too self-deprecating to say that he is good at it. And we all know and listeners know that. They're listening I, to the show and he does a good job like, of it. I don't do the stage setting. That's the thing that I always forget to do. It's why I, Ryan is very good at that. Joe, you're good at that when you host. And Daryl was always very good about sort of establishing the basics, establishing the introduction and the thesis. Where, whereas I'm like, let's go straight into the weeds and make up, this Taylor. impenetrable for everybody. Our anyway. listeners are smart. Our <laughs> listeners are, are astute. They'll get on board. Um, yeah, I just was wondering because I always remember Daryl doing his very classic Hello and welcome. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't know if, if the, he had always sort of been the one driving that ship or, or if it had traded yeah. off. And, and there you go. That answered my question. Yeah, because I I was more uh, like I think I would I would say like to, I was it would abbreviate to the pod. And he hated that because I think that was at the time the Guardian Football Weekly would would do that. But they would make it as though they were recording in like an actual pod was their gimmick premise at the time of like we're all right. in a pod in outer space. Uh, and so, yeah, I think hello and welcome. W- was definitely him but i think by his own admission that's just a very like british way to begin anything mm. is usually a like hello and welcome to whatever uh, and so i do love when people we'd still get like genuinely i do appreciate when we would still get emails from people being like hey great british baking show began with hello and welcome they stole your thing and it's like i don't i don't have a greeting is ever like a thing that can be stolen necessarily but also i'm pretty sure that's just uh polite britishness uh graham our polite british expert uh way in here uh, English people say hello and welcome. In Scotland, go. we just say, "All right, how you <laughs> yeah. doing? What you want? That's that's yeah. the, what do you Scots want? What do you want? Yeah. That's the yeah. Scots right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Uh, still afraid of uh, Asamojian and Ghana, and uh, don't watch games in a bar if you want to know what happened and be able to talk about it in a coherent way. Uh, next question uh, comes from Kevin Lafollette. Uh, Lafollette, uh, you've bought a DeLorean big time and Mr. Fusion and can go back in time. Graham, this is a Back to the Future reference, yes? Yeah. All Graham's right. smiling Absolutely. from ear to yes. ear right now. <laughs> Graham is loving this. <laughs> Your job is to set the foundation for soccer in America in hopes of becoming uh, the U.S. national pastime. When and where do you end up going? Uh, Joe, let's go to you so Graham yes. can keep his Back to the Future powder dry. Um, I love this question. All these questions have been great, but this one really got me thinking. I'm going back quite some time. I'm going back to the year 1869, oh uh, which wow. is often cited as the start of college soccer slash football in the U.S. because <laughs> back then the game was not really developed. I don't so know why that's so funny to me. It's there was a game and college football. <laughs> Those are the two things. Yeah. There was a game between Princeton and Rutgers that, as far as I can tell, was kind of football, kind of soccer, talking mm-hmm. about the American football versus soccer. Um, and, and the game was still trying to find itself at that point. It was certainly still trying to find itself in the United States. I'm going to take that year 
it's the first year to start my work and I'll be giving myself to a life in the past and I'll be working diligently throughout this time period for however long I can make it in the slightly more disease-ridden world of the 19th centuries. I'm going to slowly find and destroy every American football-shaped ball yep. and replace it with a round one. That's Love step it. one of my plan. Uh, step two, I'm going to start an official governing body way before the American Football Association, which apparently was sort of an early predecessor of sorts to U.S. soccer. Uh, that started in 1884. So we're getting on that right from the start. Like, I, I, knowing what I know now and having a little bit of that inside knowledge, like, we're going back to the past and we're going to really get this thing off the ground. The other thing that I want to do is we're going to start FIFA in the U.S. before 1904, which I learned yesterday is when FIFA was founded. Ooh. Who knew? Uh, we're also going to give it a different name. Even though FIFA has a good ring to it, uh, we're not rocking with, like, a French acronym. I'm sorry. Uh, when people ask me what FIFA means, and I, I really struggle to tell them, we've got to change that. So there's got to be some American twist we can put on that. Global Association of Soccer, we're calling it the gas. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but other than that, I think EA we're... Sports FC, I think, is a good rebrand of I FIFA. love that, Graham. EA Sports FC, let's make, let's make it happen. I, um, and, I just I just have to interject to say, Joe, I love like I love and at least a few listeners are losing their minds that you you are concerned about football as being the competitor of uh, America's national pastime and not baseball, which I feel like is routinely called America's national pastime. I feel like you're maybe showing where you rank baseball in terms of sporting importance in this country. Yeah, wake up, people. Wake up. People. The Diamondbacks are in the NLCS right now. Maybe if they beat the Phillies yesterday, I would be having a different tune right now, but they're down one oh. Um, so we're we're all mourning a bit here in, in Arizona at the moment. Um, but come on, guys. We, we, we all know deep down what the deal is here. Um, my, my last step in this Correct. is um, <laughs> the, the biggest key to my plan is I am bringing buckets of money with me. I am bringing a t as much cash as I can get my hands on. I'm leaving because I'm, I'm not paying back that debt before I go. So that's not a problem. I'm getting a, a ton of money and hey. I'm, I'm doing a reverse. Spoken like a glazer. Hey, awesome. You're welcome. <laughs> right, right, right in there. I'm doing a reverse pay to play. So instead of youth players, easy for me to say, youth players paying the teams mm -hmm. to actually get to play, oh, I'm going like to pay it. all the youth players and just general soccer players that I can find. I tried to find a conversion in like 1904 money to today's money. I couldn't quite find 1904. I think 1915 was about what I could do. But it's only about $33 in today's currency to pay somebody $1,000 back in the early 1900s, as far as the one conversion website that I looked at, very thorough research on my part. So it's pennies, right? We're just going to call it pennies back in 1904. And I'm going to make it very worth their while for whoever is willing to start playing soccer and continue it. And maybe we'll work out some sort of contract where you know you get your $1,000 at the end of six months or whatever it is. But that's how I'm creating an army of soccer players to play under my big foundation in the U.S. and to play as the center of soccer when we start FIFA. That's how I'm doing it. So, Joe, I love that you've thought about like how to make it spread and how to make it popular and how to grow the game in the country. I also really love the date you've settled on because I was aiming for about 100 years later, but mm. you sort of swayed me that the 1960s is probably starting too late. The 1860s, definitely not <laughs> starting too late. too early. <laughs> well, but see, here's the thing, though, man. As I said, like, Civil War ends in 1865. Reconstruction ends in 1877. So you've got a nation still very divided, still very fractured, and a lot of tension, a lot of fighting still there. And I feel like you bring in this sport that, especially football of that era, there's going to be a bit of physicality. There's going to be some back and forth. And I equate it with the way, to my understanding, like in indigenous tribes would use lacrosse as a way to sort of have formal sometimes violent competition that wasn't outright conflict. And so maybe we have like different states forming their own uh, soccer teams. And then that's how we handle some of that like north south divide that remains as they're playing each other uh, and, and a nation unites around soccer. There we go, Jay. Yes. Joe, we, slogan, we heal. slogan achieved for my foundation, Taylor. Yes. I'm into this. Yes. This is good. Yes. All right. So J Joe has swayed me away from my uh, Beatlemania, everybody hates Vietnam era. Uh, Graham, where were you uh, when thinking about what time period to go back to to uh, solve U.S. soccer? Mm. I feel like this is one that you've got a lot of thoughts about. Well, Should we just clear out and let you go? Well, first of all, Graham, are you ever going to get out of the DeLorean? Like yeah. that, that is no, a huge moment no. for you. Taking, yeah. a taking a DeLorean home. That's not, yeah, I'm never getting out of it. Um, going after Joe, my, my measures feel all of a sudden a little bit insufficient. Oh, did you um, not if research got, inflation? No? Well, the bullet points of his plan is... Um, confiscate every pigskin ball in the country, mm -hmm. move basically the headquarters slash embassy of football and create a soccer army. Mm -hmm. I wasn't aware
that like fascism was on the table uh, in this in this question. But uh, there we go. I'm 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 packing my Mr. Fusion with the banana skins and. Just, I'm 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 I'm, pack, I'm I'm going to the uh, the days of the cosmos. So I'm going mm-hmm. basically because if I've got a DeLorean, that's the that's the era that's the most fun. <laughs> that's the era I want to be around for. Um, so a bit selfish on 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 my part there. But I love the cosmos story. Obviously not something I was around for. But I've read so much about it. I have the the documentary on a DVD. Not that I have a DVD player anymore. But one day I might invest in a DVD player to watch the cosmos documentary that I still have on DVD. Um, that team and, and Pelly signing for them really seem to, to capture the imagination in a way that is rare and I can't help but wonder what might have been had proper framework and infrastructure been put put in place to support the whole thing so obviously it's a bit of a flash in the pan thing with the NESL you don't think cocaine collapses. got the job done really no that, w- that wasn't uh, enough no I don't feel like more was needed question mark more cocaine got it <laughs> got it got it got it Graham's official policy awesome <laughs> yeah built on more than cocaine just a little bit more that's the that's the the motto but yeah I think if you if it, it feels like you could have made much quicker progress back then as well like if you're on TV it was easier to attract fans and attention and now it is a much more competitive landscape where you're competing with you know, kids playing EA Sports FC, second mention of that on on the show today or, or, or whatever. So I do wonder if the NASL had done it properly and had built around the Cosmos and Pele and not just left it up to star power and um, those big crowds at Giant Stadium. I, I do wonder if maybe soccer is 20 to 30 years ahead of where it is. Now, alternatively, my other idea was to go a little bit further back and I'd go back to the heyday of Detroit as the industrial heartland of the USA, another subject that I am fascinated uh, by. Stuart Cosgrove is a writer that I very much like on this subject and so maybe I'm um, being pretty selfish was the two... Uh, periods of time that I am heading I back like to but I would plant a soccer team in every big factory in the heyday of Detroit because that is how soccer got such strong roots in the northwest of England which is obviously a, a powerhouse for the game Manchester United start out as oh what did they, what was their name and they were like the railway team and Newton, Newton Heath there we go they were the railway team in Manchester. So in Detroit, I'm guessing you you would have like a, a Ford team, you would have like a GM team or whatever, and they'd have played from the 20s to the 30s and they would have had those big heavy shirts and <laughs> played with uh, balls like boulders. And yeah, that would have been a fun time. And so I do wonder if that maybe roots soccer in the US a, a, a little bit more firmly in that period. That's interesting. That's very interesting. I like both these answers. As I said, mine was closer to Graham's initially, although I think Joe, I'm down for the 1860s. Let's see what happens. Uh, not not a thing that a lot of people want to say when talking about time travel. But no, in the late ni- mid-late 1960s, so we've got like Beatlemania has happened, is happening, and then England are about to win or have won the World Cup. And I think... When I think back on like playing soccer when I was younger, like even in the like early 90s, I think it was still like communist cook, kick, kickball. And it was still a very like European, weird, hippie thing. Like my mom talks about that as being like, like she dated a soccer player and that was weird for the time. Like not a football player, but a soccer player. Like, whoa, whoa, what's going on there? And so I think you have to find a time period when people can sort of latch on to the sport as not being some like foreign devil's game. And so I think if you started in the 60s with an like a like playing into uh Beatlemania England and you sort of make that the the touchstone for a lot of people. But then as like maybe Vietnam ends and there's frustra- frustration with the US government and maybe western Europe isn't looking quite so bad, uh may- maybe again you have you have people sort of embracing that sport a little more openly and then it becomes a way to uh to like as you go have soft power in fighting uh communism in the soviets and the eastern bloc a la hockey you could have soccer teams going to the olympics and going to the world cup and embarrassing the ruskies and then and then it all is is happy question mark either way i think it's a time period when you could have had a a decent u.s team probably does pretty well in Concacaf. uh probably still like finishes second behind Mexico in qualifying. I don't think there was a ton of funding at the time. So I think the U.S. being good earlier probably helps more people embrace that sport in the long term. But Bags of so, cash. Bags of cash, baby. Bags of cash, baby. What I'm, what I'm hearing is like music slash band themed league. So you have like a Beatles team yep. dressed as Sergeant Peppers and, yep. and, and you have like Rolling Stones, mm-hmm. The Clash, Sex Pistols. Ooh, I'm yes. a fan of the Sex Pistols team. That's That's my team. That's my kind of vibe. 
Uh, yeah, I'm trying to like now. Now you got me going here, Graham. I, I'm a little bit into this. Does Depeche Mode get a team later on in life? Oh yeah, see, I'm a Depeche Mode fan as well. <laughs> I know <Yeah>. you are. <laughs> uh, and uh, I don't know if like Joy Division. Who's the other um, like the other big Manchester band from like the post punk era? Like the Smiths? No. Who sings "Ever Fall in Love with Someone You Shouldn't Have Fallen in Love With"? That's going to annoy me for a while. Uh, Shrek. <laughs> uh, it will come to me at some point in this episode, and I will yell it there out. Is a, there is a cruelty the to the I fact want. that we're having this discussion on the show that Ryan's I'm not loving on. It. I'm loving it. Uh, <laughs> let's just make sure to talk around Oasis without ever mentioning Oasis, and that should be fun for Ryan. Uh, let's take one more break, and let's move away from mentioning random bands, uh, and let's come back to answer a few more questions. Back soon. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between, but no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. 
Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. It was the Buzzcocks, by the way. Thank you, Graham. Uh, we are continuing to answer listener questions. I don't know who to come to for this one, so that's going to be interesting. From Andy Malio. Uh, if you could do anything you want, what would you do to develop better coaching in the U.S.? So I guess we're firing up the DeLorean if we need to. Uh, but, yeah, Joe, I guess if you have limitless resources, how are we going to make coaching in the U.S. better? Do we just give... Uh, Greg Berhalter, a lectern and send him around the country. I think that probably does it right. Everybody loves that idea. I, I think so. I think we got this one all wrapped up and solved. Cool. That one Moving took on. no time at all. No, so <laughs> I didn't go down the limitless resources route. I tried to think of something that is somewhat feasible. Uh, my, my biggest thing here is maybe trying to eliminate some of the cost of getting your coaching licenses. I think there are many more grassroots things that could be done, um, but are a little bit harder to actually input into that environment because it is grassroots and it's not as structured and it, it is much broader than things that are directly controlled by U.S. soccer, like things like coaching licenses. And again, there's a lot here that I don't know, and I want to admit that right off the top. I also want to admit there are, are costs, obvious costs associated with putting on coaching license courses. You got you to gotta pay people. Like resources cost money, facilities cost money, all these things. I understand that there is a cost that is incurred by putting on these license courses. That said... I think if you at least reduce the cost of some of the intro levels, you're going to have a, a wider pool of coaches. And in general, I think the U.S. needs more coaches, needs more coaches that have some level of qualification to then coach kids and, and maybe at a higher level in their area. Like that is something that is missing right now. People that are educated about the game. And the more you can do that, I think the better off you're going to be, the better off soccer in this country is going to be. So my thought is making the intro levels, I believe there's 11 v 11, there's 7 v 7, 4 v 4, like very, very basic coaching levels. Then you go to the D license, to the C license, to the B license to make those very inexpensive because those are the licenses, I did this research this morning, that people can pursue even outside of coaching in a high-level environment. So if you're getting your A license, you have to be in and around a high-level team, which makes sense, right? That is the final hurdle in the U.S. soccer coaching license pyramid. But even for a B license, just one level lower, and it is a massive step lower, you don't have to be coaching at the pro level or at the college level. You just have to be having access to a U13 or older team playing 11 v 11 during the entirety of the course, which is, again, this is a substantial uh, thing to add to your resume. The B license is not something you log onto your computer and, and polish up in two hours, right? This is a real sort of process. But right now, from what I could find, those B license courses cost $2,500 plus for these coaches. And Taylor, you know this, mm -hmm. coaching youth soccer is not a lucrative business. Like no. unless you are doing an absurd amount of it or you have somehow found yourself at the top of one of these pay to play clubs that is masquerading as maybe a European entity when it's really just been branded that way. Like you're not likely to make a lot of money doing this stuff. And so I think if you can reduce some of those hurdles, those financial obstacles, you're going to have more and more quality people it's pretty obvious, and I honestly don't know how feasible it is, but I feel like to an extent, there's some work that could be done here. Yeah, I, th I think that is fair. I think it's a confusing thing to say, like, coaches should be paid more, but coaching courses should cost less. But I think that is the reality. I don't know how you make that work, but that's not what we're about, Joe. That's not what we're trying to do today. In terms of what we think we could do to develop better coaching, I think – to play off of your answer, Joe, to start with, I feel like there's a decent chance that all of my solutions will be met by somebody saying like, yeah, that exists. Here it is. Uh, but uh, I don't know if this thing exists, so I'm going to advocate for it anyway. I think coaching courses should be, if not free, then much, much cheaper, much more widely available. And I think there should be plenty of free resources to help facilitate better coaching and training. Like if U.S. soccer had a coaching app, which I think uh, United Soccer Coaches does, but you had a, a free app where, let's say my brother who's coaching my my like uh, U9 level niece, uh, he, he called me to be like, hey, what's like a drill I could do to do this? Or how does this work? And, and I appreciated that. And you could do some Googling and find some stuff. But the idea of like U9 soccer rules, here are the rules that you have to abide by. Here are the, here's the build out rule and how that happens. Like, cause that's changed since he played soccer. I think any sort of central resource that gives you the very basic information in a clear cut and informative way helps. But then I think also anything that gives you drills and ways to run practices and ways to run uh, like just to organize a practice, even from like the basic drill to how to implement that drill into like a playing situation to more free play to an outright game at the end. Like I think a logical progression is something that 
a lot of people know if they've taken a coaching course, but if they haven't, it's we're going to work on shooting today. So we're going to put a kid in goal and we're going to fire some shots at him and we'll see what happens. Like, I, I think greater availability of resources in a central way that makes it just easier to find and navigate would be really useful. And I think the same goes for referees. I think referees in the world, but definitely in this country, are abused and maligned and and get yelled at a lot and they do a really thankless job because you have to have them there and I remember coaching 10 year olds where referees would stop the game to be like no you can't do that you got to do it this way and I think more referees that can help teach and inform along the way I think that's what it's all about is is just teaching and helping basically develop players that can think on their own that can process information in a sporting environment but also just function as a team and pick up their teammates like that's what it's all about that's what a coach is supposed to do so i think anything that helps make that happen would be uh pretty wonderful graham bring it home by solving coaching in the u.s uh, that is that's quite the task for an outsider like myself to, to solve uh, Taylor I obviously don't know the youth co- coaching landscape uh, very well in the US but the two things in my notes both of you have hit upon number one is money pay to play number two was fragmenta- fragmentation is what I've got down in my notes which is exactly what you're you're talking about there I think Taylor there's a lack of centralization not not that we for for a moment have everything perfect but if I were to get into youth Scot- um, youth coaching in Scotland there's only really one portion of call for me to go to that would be through the national association who heavily subsidize kind of all coaching courses at youth level in 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 scotland and some of the numbers that i found i found something from 2019 that puts the price of a place at the u.s soccer development academy at between two two and a half thousand dollars and five thousand dollars a year and that's pre-covid as well so i'd I'd hazard a guess that that number has that price has gone up in the last four years and i remember when i paid when I was a teenager for training and I'd have training once a week and I'd have a game on the Saturday and it was £5 a week. I always remember my, my wee £5 note. That was a while ago, admittedly, so I'd imagine it's probably doubled since then, but it, it, it will be, I'd imagine most kids pay between 10 and £20 a week in Scotland and in, in the UK, um, which is obviously a lot less than it seems to in most cases in the US, because I know I know MLS academies are in a lot of instances free, um, but I believe there's a selection process there and it's a very limited number of, of spaces. So I agree with Joe, lowering the barrier there in terms of, of, of price would surely broaden the pool. I, I found another article that said youth sports, so not just soccer, youth sports in the USA is worth um, $19.2 billion a year. Which means that it's the youth sports market in the US is worth more than the NFL per year. Which I know the US is a big country and that is all sports, but that it really does seem like youth sport and youth soccer is 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 treated as more of kind of like a business in in the US than um, and obviously I'm making sweeping generalizations here, but broadly speaking, it seems like that is treated as more of a business. And I just don't think you produce the best soccer players that way you you can produce good soccer players that way but it's the sort of thing joe was talking about with these branded academies how many elite level players have they actually produced the one in arizona near uh joe seems yeah, to have that produced one's a handful of that's, them that's an academy yeah. of its own yeah but the others don't seem to exist for any other reason than just to make money off parents yay soccer in america so we've solved it historically and presently uh you're welcome everybody i i would say like one more thing for me, uh, and I, I feel like this is maybe not uh, like an unpopular opinion anymore. It definitely used to be, but the whole like why like we don't even keep score. Like why do we give trophies for participation and stuff like that? It really, in my mind, misses the point, which is that when you're a nine year old, like winning doesn't really matter. Other than yes, it's nice to win versus be beaten ten nil, but. To me, it's about like learning how to play the game well and then learning how to like think while playing the game. And then as you age and and you can get more competitive and understand that competitive process, then maybe that's where it really matters. But but I think like if I end up coaching my daughter, uh, I definitely do not care if her team wins. But if her team passes the ball three times when they're seven, I feel like that's the greatest achievement ever in the history of soccer is getting a seven-year-old to pass the ball. So like, and that's what you have to do. And the earlier kids learn how to play the game and read the game and see what's happening and know where they're supposed to be and when you're supposed to move centrally versus when you're supposed to stay wide, 
I remember as a 10 year old just getting yelled at about like, no, you're supposed to be in the middle. You're supposed to be in the middle. And I would run to the middle and then they'd be like, no, you're supposed to be wide. And I would run wide and I would be so confused. And genuinely like nobody for the first season I played told me when we have the ball, you stay wide. When we don't have the ball go centrally. And it's just like, I think sometimes basic stuff gets lost because there's an assumption that kids know. And there's so much other stuff that coaches are trying to do. And I think the better we can do at establishing those fundamentals and helping kids understand for themselves and want to understand for themselves, the better players will be and the better coaching will be. So I think that's my other soapbox that I will stand on uh, and now get off of. No, I think it's a good soapbox to stand on. I'll be honest. I don't know fully where I land on keeping score versus not keeping score. I'll speak for myself as a young kid. I did want to win. I think everybody really wants to win and you kind of got to that too, Taylor, right? So I'm not denying that, but I think having so much of the focus beyond the results at youth level is is obviously problematic, and I think most people in this space would agree with that. I think the solution, or at least a solution, that doesn't necessitate completely getting rid of, of keeping score is for coaches to better set goals for their teams, right? It's exactly what you're talking about there, Taylor, of we want to pass the ball three times in a row. And like that, when we do that, we are going to celebrate as a team, or, or, or that's what we're going to talk about after the game, much less so than the score. So I don't know that it's necessarily bad to keep score or, or even yeah, to yeah. discourage That's the idea of wanting to win. Because I, f- mm-hmm. I do feel like that idea gets tossed out there a lot in youth soccer spaces. And I think that that is the right general idea, but I think the execution of it falls much more on the coaches, the authority figures to establish more healthy goals that yes, the score is here and it's in the background, but the, our team, like these are the things that we're building towards. Yeah. These are the things that we want to win. And these are, are the things we're going to celebrate and make fun to give some joy to, to other things that are not tied to the score. So, yeah. Totally agree, Joe. I think back to when I was a kid and I played at like 12 or 13 or whatever. See if in those games we hadn't had a score. It wouldn't have been fun. Like that that pulls you through. It's an incentive, right? It's different different at four than it is at 12. So there is some some gradient here. But I think generally speaking... I stand by kind of the point that I made. And Graham, yeah, I think you're I think you're Yeah, I think think those are fair points. And I think if I'm being a little bit more like subtle uh, in what I'm saying, I think what I really have an aversion to is coaches who care a lot about their team winning every single game right and so you end up i've talked about this before you put the kid who can kick the ball the furthest in the back and you kick and you put the fastest biggest kid up top and the kid who can kick the ball kicks it to the big kid who's fast and then the big fast kid scores a goal because he's bigger and faster and can score and then that works and you win your league when they're nine and then when they're 13 and everyone else has developed skills, they're no longer good and they hate soccer now. And, and I think that is where there's that difference of like if you if you can score goals by teaching kids how to dribble and teaching kids how to pass like, yeah, win your game. That's awesome. Yeah. But I think don't prioritize winning at the expense of like helping kids like soccer and enjoy the sport. I've got a great example of that. So when I played around, you know, 12 or 13, as I say, um, we weren't a particularly good team, but we, we made a we made a final in a tournament one time. And the coach decided that the rules of this tournament allowed him to go to the higher age group, one up from us, to take players for this final to put into our team. And so we'd played all the way through this tournament, got to the final, and then only a handful of us actually played in the final because the coach decided he wanted to win this game and um, funny thing is we actually ended up losing that game but um yeah that was a perfect example of what did that achieve like yeah. it, it, it didn't actually achieve anything at all well there we go so hopefully we've achieved a satisfactory answer to that question thank you uh andy for that one uh graham from <laughs> gnome de plume that is a phenomenal name would UEFA ever put Champions League games on a weekend? I work a normal 8 to 4, Monday through Friday kind of job. I would watch a ton of Champions League if it was on weekends. Could it ever happen? I think UEFA wouldn't mind that. I think other people yeah. might. So obviously the Champions League final already happens on a, on a Saturday. And that is a, that is a relatively new thing. So the first... Um, it's it's not as new as I thought it was when I was doing this research. Yeah, I was time, like, oh, they've only annoying, been doing that. Huh? Time's yeah, annoying. <laughs> exactly. Um, I was like, yeah, they've only been doing yeah. that for five yep. years. They've been doing that since 2010, yeah. which was a shock. So the Inter Bayern, the, the Jose Mourinho treble season final at the Bernabeu was the first time that they had done that. Before then, it had always been played in, in, in the middle of the week. There has been reporting in recent years that UEFA 
um, wouldn't only love to have Champions League matches on we- weekends, but they have been planning for this for, for, for some time with some of the reforms to the competition. So there was a plan a few years ago where two or three match days a season would take place at the weekend and UEFA is keen for this because um, no, man's, no man's the only person who would watch more Champions League at the weekend. UEFA believes this would boost the viewership and would apparently um, make a bigger impact in some Asian markets as well. Um, some articles I was reading were, were claiming... Um, so this plan has been reported in one form or another every year for the last few years I found a report from 2017 that said this was a plan and I found another one from 2018 and then 2019 you get the idea so this is something that has been in the pipeline for a while but the difficulty is it requires a a big concession from all the domestic leagues for it to ever happen and it wouldn't just require concessions from you know the Premier League, the Bundesliga. You, you've got you've got teams from all over Europe, from the Netherlands. You know Red Star Belgrade are in the Champions League group stages this season. So you would need a big concession from every league in Europe for it to happen, and that is a very difficult thing to achieve. Joe, we're doing Champions League on the weekends. I don't think it's impossible to be honest, and I think Graham has, has summed it up pretty darn well. I think European soccer is going to involve is going to evolve over the next decade or so. We're already seeing. New Champions League format next year. We're seeing an attempt at a Super League in the past few years. There have been discussions of leagues merging, or at least of there being more interleague play, a la something like Leagues Cup. The Netherlands and Belgium, there have been reports surrounding those leagues for, for years now as well. I, the mechanics are not easy, and Graham, you got to that point very well. Uh, but I also don't think it's impossible, even if we're not likely to see it over the next five, ten years or so. There we go. Answered, gentlemen. That one's a little bit more straightforward than some of the more time travel theoretical ones. Uh, so we appreciate <laughs> that one from Gnome. Final question for today comes from Ira Jersey. Uh, Ira Jersey, a longtime supporter. He and his son Isaac uh, and listener and just a good, good all around guy, uh, owner of Real Central New Jersey as well. Uh, you should support them, too. Ira says... I'll be attending the Aston Villa v. West Ham match on October 22nd. I'm a Villa supporter, uh, for what it's worth. Can each of you provide a very specific prediction for this match? Ryan did message me his specific prediction. It was that uh, Villa would win 8-0. Uh, I'm oh, going to sure. go ahead and say that that was his prediction so that he does not get the prediction point. Joe, what was your specific prediction? See, the thing is, hold on. V- Villa have won 6 1 this season. So if that comes in, we're, go- we're go- all going to look at Did I say eight? Sorry, sorry. It was a type 18. He said 18 oh, now right, is yeah. what Villa would win by. So yeah, I thought okay. you were just going to say Ryan predicted there would be a pass in this game um, and, and really we could reignite some of our World Cup debate. Um, first off, it's a great uh, great day to go see a soccer game. This is my wedding anniversary, so props hey. to you, Ira. Good good on you. That's um, why he did it. That's what I heard. He told me that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I heard a little voice in my head that, that said that. Um, uh, so my VSP for this match is that Aston Villa will not be called offside once. So here's why. West Ham tend to play a lower block and would prefer to absorb pressure under David Moyes and, and really venture high up the field. That alone makes it a little more difficult for opposing, uh, opposing attackers to slip in behind. They have the second highest West Ham PPDA in the Premier League this year. That's passes per defensive action. So they tend to allow a lot of passes before actually stepping in to intervene defensively. So they're going to sit a little bit deeper. Aston Villa, for their part, play a, a pretty balanced possession game. They do like to get in behind, but they, they also rarely get called for offside. They're averaging just 0.75 offsides per 90 minutes, according to FBref. So I'm smooshing those things together. It's not like Aston Villa never get called offside, but I think in this game, with this matchup, a lot of the game is going to be played ahead of West Ham's back line, which is probably what they want, and Aston Villa are going to have to get creative with how they break through. Wow. I like that one quite a bit. Uh, Graham, what have you got for us? So I agree that the majority of this match is probably going to be played in in, in front of the West Ham uh, back line. However, Aston Villa do like to hit out in the counter-attack themselves. In fact, statistically, this is a very rudimentary statistic here, but they are the two best counter-attacking teams in the Premier League. So West Ham have scored the most counter-attacking goals with three, not too surprising given what Joe was saying about how they like to play. Um, Villa are joint second with, uh, with two, so the sample size is small at this stage of the season, but nonetheless, some of the performances they have produced, particularly in that 
game against uh, against Brighton, where they smashed them 6-1, the aforementioned 6-1 game. I remember Aston Villa being very, very effective on the break against a possession team. So there is a question of the balance of the match. Joe's right, West Ham will probably sit back and absorb. But my VSP is that there will be at least one counter-attack attacking goal between the uh, between the two teams. And also, Ira won't be able to... That's a second v, uh, a VSP, a, a supplementary VSP. Ira won't be able to look away from John McGinn's backside because nobody can escape the all-compassing power of John McGinn's backside. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Graham's, Graham's enduring love of John McGinn's backside is one of my favorite recurring themes of this, uh, of this show. Uh, for me... I'm just going to go basic. There will be a goal from a set piece. Uh, that could be James Ward-Prowse related, always dangerous. But also, uh, watching Villa versus Wolves, they scored off of a set piece, and they looked dangerous multiple times, not just from free kicks, but from corners. So I think between Villa uh, having some priors with scoring goals off set pieces and, and looking like they've got some really clever design set pieces, and then James Ward-Prowse being quite good on the ball, quite good from corners as well. Uh, it's why I have him in my fantasy team. Uh, I think there will be a goal from a set piece. And again, Ryan Bailey, 18-0 for the villains. Uh, so there you go. There's four specific yeah. predictions. I'm it's sure a good game we'll to go them. to. The, the Claret and Blue derby or the uh, the David Cameron, I can't remember who I actually support derby, as I like to, to call it. <laughs> uh, if you did... If you were going to do like a round robin four team tournament, would it be Villa, West Ham, Burnley, and Scunthorpe? Like who who are the Claret and Blue teams, Graham? Those are certainly Claret and Blue teams. I'm trying to think if there's a more uh, kind of prominent. You don't think Scunthorpe is going to get the Scunthorpe. job done? No. Um, are we forgetting one? Okay. Uh, Follow up question while think Graham it. thinks about that for Joe. Is Scunthorpe the least attractive team name that you can think of? Yep, pretty much yep. sounds like it. There maybe right. are a couple others out there that are at least on par, but Scunthorpe sounds pretty repulsing. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, like, oh, if you're, if you're trying really to like, impress somebody, like, yeah, I'm a professional footballer for who? Oh, who do you play Scunthorpe. For? It's like, oh, mm. do you play for Slough as well? <laughs> like, shouldn't it's hang not going to be a good thing. Scun- Scunthorpe have one of the best badges in football. Can anyone think of it off yeah, the top of their head? It's like a hand bottle, right? No, it's it's not like a a steel bar. Are they not called like the iron? Oh, I thought it was I thought it was them holding a bottle of liquor because that's how you medicate when you play for Scunthorpe. Guys, I'm going to be honest. I'd never heard of Scunthorpe. Thorpe until like 28 seconds ago. So I don't know what the they best are, looks like. I'll so admit. I googled how many Claret and Blue English teams are there. There are four. You named them all straight off the top of the head, Taylor. That's pretty impressive. Hey, all right. <laughs> I'm glad my brain knows that and not math. Awesome. Thanks, brain. Uh, thank you both for answering all these listener questions. Thank you to uh, our listeners for sending them and to Ryan Bailey for selecting them. I hope the move has gone well and that he is at least somewhat calm uh, as he listens to this. But uh, Graham Ruthman, thank you for taking the time to answer some questions, my friend. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. I've kicked Biff out of the seat Attaboy. and I'm taking this DeLorean home with me. Attaboy. Uh, did you fill it with trash as well? Is that how it's powered in the second yep. one? Cool. Yeah, b- uh, banana peels and uh, banana skins and potato peels is what I filled it with. I've, and uh, this sports almanac as well, I stuck that in. Was I meant to do that yep. or was I meant to mm-hmm. keep that? Did I make a mistake? Uh, no, I think you're good there. And if you fry up banana peels and potato skins, I believe that's called a Scottish dinner. Graham, uh, thank you again. <laughs> Joe, thank you, my friend. Till you forgot the fried ice cream and the fried pizza and the oh, Skittles. Yes, of course. Um, but otherwise, I think you're right on. Thank you, Taylor. For, I forgot that Scotland is on the county fair diet. That's an important <laughs> one to remember. Uh, <laughs> listeners, thanks again. We'll talk to you tomorrow when Joe and I are back to review the USA's complete and comprehensive win and nothing else uh, over Ghana, where Asamoah Gyan returns and I get nervous. Talk to you then. Thanks again. Thanks again.